Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Neurological. Um, where we hope you get psyched about this information. So today's episode, I'm here with my partner in crime and psychology, Tiana. And we're going to be discussing something that I've looked into for our doctorate program, specific area of interest. So Tiana's kind of going to walk us through that. All right, so diving right in, um, I guess first tell us what the overview of this topic is. Okay, so the topic is um, specifically law enforcement and their interactions with uh, persons with a mental illness. Um, so there's been a lot of of things in the media, um, especially over the course of the last uh, couple months. Um, we've seen a lot of the, the racial uh, components play out um, with interactions between law enforcement um, and citizens, but um, sometimes it's, it's also covered where law enforcement are interacting with uh, persons with mental illness, and that gets um, highlighted. And there's obviously, anytime law enforcement interact with um, a person in, in the general public, there's a, there's a use of there could be a use of force, um, which that use of force could either be um, just an injury for one person in, involved, multiple people involved, um, or unfortunately it could also be that it results in a fatal outcome, which the person would then uh, be deceased from the interaction because of the use of deadly force. So this problem um, that I focused on for my for this prevention class that we're taking, or that we were taking, um, was how law enforcement can better respond um, in a more appropriate way to reduce the risk that a person will be injured um, or unfortunately killed in the interaction. So this problem is uh, very important. Like I said, it's been covered a lot in the media, but that doesn't paint the full picture. So. According to a, a Washington Post database, um, more than 5,000 people since 2015, which is when the database started kind of looking, um, have been killed in police-involved shootings. And so it, in the course of five years, that's a, over 1,000 people a year um, that have been killed in, in those. And then if you look at this database, is great because it can break down certain factors that were involved. And if the person had a known mental illness, um, is put in there as well. So when you look at that, it was well uh, disproportionate uh, to the number of people who have a mental illness uh, diagnosed in the population. So about 20% of all people have a diagnosable mental illness that we know of. And the percentage of people who were being killed by police officers in the interactions was over 20%. It was actually like 23%. Um, so that's disproportionate. And then I looked at Pennsylvania specifically because of where we live, and Pennsylvania was even worse. So ours was over 27% of the shootings involved a person with a mental illness uh, being killed versus the 20% that um, people in the general population have a mental illness. So that's the, the problem there is that um, people with a mental illness are being killed at disproportionate rates in police-involved shootings. Um, and that's just being looking at the f fatalities in the terms of um, people being injured 
um, that's also disproportionate. Um, one of the articles that I had reviewed talked about um, people with a mental illness being 16 times more likely to be shot and killed in an interaction than the general population. Um, and then it also just talked about how more incidents involving a police officer with a person with mental illness involved the use of higher levels of force. So like uh, physical um, hand combat um, or a taser, pepper spray, or unfortunately a firearm. So that's uh, kind of the overview of the problem that I was trying to look at and continue to look at. Mm -hmm. Now, I know, and you even said that some of this, not some of this, this has been really highlighted in the media recently. Was that a, a driving force for you? Um, or is this a topic that you've always been interested in studying and just now the opportunity being in school presented for you to really dive in? Uh, I think it was a combination of both. So I've always, well, I shouldn't say always, because, like, when I was one years old, I wasn't thinking about police. No, you probably were. <laughs> oh, I yeah. swear you were. Yeah. Well, we can ask my mom and see if that's what I was babbling about. If that's what I was babbling about. Um, no, so the, when I first started my master's program in forensic psychology, I've had the interest of the intersection between criminal justice system psychology. So police officers interacting with people with a mental illness. That's a, a crossover, we'll say. Um, but definitely the, the media coverage of it, you know, I think with anything that can spark a lot of, you know, advocacy or trying to change things. So if you look at the media right now, it's a lot of let's, you know, reform the criminal justice system, um, which is interesting that it's all focused, let's reform the criminal justice system, not let's reform all of our systems. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, so, but yeah, the media coverage definitely, I mean, there was a local case where a person uh, with a known mental illness um, was killed in a police interaction. Um, so that definitely kind of sparked my interest to see because just because it's covered in the media, like I said, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's something like that's the whole problem um, or that's the problem we should focus on. So I wanted to know a little bit more about it before I actually, you know, talked about it or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And what did you find in your research? Um, I guess just with regards to the intersection between race, mental illness and use of force. Did you find anything there? Any sort of relationship? Or it's just, like, there's too many moving pieces at that point. So, most of the research that I looked at did not isolate those two factors. Mm. Um, so, you know, I don't want to say that I did any new research. Um, I just examined what is already out there and applied it to this so there's a lot of research on there out there about racial biases impacting or racial factors just impacting interactions with police. So, you know, African-American males, um, black youth are more likely to be shot by a police officer than white youth or white adults um, statistically and in the research. But there's not as much about what's what's going to happen if the person has a mental illness. 
Um, in those studies that did look at the mental illness, they did obviously look at the um, people involved and their race, but there was no, like, what does that mean in terms of are people that are black and have a mental illness more likely to be killed than a person that's white and have a mental illness? Okay. There was nothing that kind of separated that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's what I was looking for to see, like, was there, like, a standout, you know, if if you are this race and you have a mental illness, is your, your risk even higher than um, other races or, or even genders? What about gender? Did you find anything there? Uh, it was almost always males Okay. that were involved. Why do you think that is? Um, question. I think with... The, I don't know if it's related to the propensity for violence in terms of men might express their violent, their behaviors more physically than a female. Um, or I don't know if that's just a confirmation thing where they, with the researchers were looking and that's what they found was that mostly men um, were involved. Um, I know that statistically mostly men are involved in the criminal justice system versus females Mm -hmm. so maybe that's what it is um i don't think there's anything to say that males uh or that police officers are called more to incidents involving a male versus a female i just in terms of those who are incarcerated uh traditionally it's more men Mm -hmm. but that's a good question yeah, I'm always interested in just, like, piecing apart those different multicultural reference groups and seeing if there's relationships, um, even I mean, though... Go ahead. I was just going to say, one of the things that I'm sure, you know, you know of is that um, some mental illnesses are more diagnosed in certain, like, a male or a female. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that that's happening more often. It just means that maybe men don't report as much don't seek out treatment as much um, as females, so it's underdiagnosed. Mm-hmm. So that could also be. Um, the Washington Post database is great, but it goes off of, you know, again, if they had a known mental illness. Um, does that mean that they were actually diagnosed by a, a psychologist? We, it doesn't say. Um, and then, again, the person could have symptoms of a mental illness, but actually it was substance use related, but... You know, do we know if that was just a one-time substance use or was it actually, you know, the person had an addiction to alcohol? So it's really um, kind of tough to piece apart. But the main takeaway there is that these are the ones that we're reporting. So the idea is it could be even higher mm-hmm. than what we're seeing. Yeah, which in most most cases when you're looking at different public health indicators, that <laughs> there's under-reporting in in so many areas so you can almost assume <laughs> use that yeah. as lightly as possible um but yes the instances probably are higher um did you find anything um statistically which mental illness had the highest uh I'm not phrasing this right, but like use of force against people with schizophrenia is higher than people with depression or anxiety or PTSD. Did you find anything there? No, they, so they actually didn't separate it based on diagnosis. It was actually Mm -hmm. more on what symptoms 
that they were seeing. And unfortunately, um, this is an area that's lacking and um, gets into my the reason why I was doing this paper um, is the approaches of law enforcement. But they identify them as behaviors, not as symptoms of the of the mental illness. So they're just saying that they see these things as just random behaviors or violent behaviors or out of context behaviors, but knowing that this person might have major depressive disorder or schizophrenia, their behavior is a symptom of that um, or is a symptom of their substance use um, or withdrawal. So they were looking at a lot of the articles I saw, it was what was the person doing, not like what was their diagnosis. So certain behaviors were more associated with the use of force. So mm -hmm. did the person become or did the person refuse to follow orders? Now that might be seen as resistance by someone who's not educated, but then someone, they better understand mental illness and they understand then that that person may not be resisting me because I'm a law enforcement officer. It's because a voice in their head's telling them, don't listen to that person. Mm -hmm. Or the voice in their head is so overpowering that they can't hear the officer give the orders or their depression um, creates a sense of like where they feel like they can't move. Um, so all these different factors that it's really not a diagnosis thing. It's more just what, what were they not doing or what were they doing that the officer then used force. Mm -hmm. So it almost sounds like there's a simple solution to a complex problem and that's empathy. Um, yes, but empathy is not so simple either. <laughs> I know it's not, but in theory it sounds, you know, teach empathy skills, practice empathy, and the problem will be reduced. But you're absolutely right, it's not so yes. easy. So the paper you wrote it for, this was intro to prevention science, right? Correct. It was, yeah. yeah, it was a literature review. Okay. Um, so what kinds of uh, sources did you use to create your paper, get your findings? So for people who are listening that aren't aware um, a, original research paper would be me going out and doing my own surveys, my own data collection, um, whatever that looks like, and then taking that information and making conclusions or suggestions based on that. My, this is an original research, but it would be a literature review. It's taking all the existing research that's already out there, seeing what all the different sources say, um, but I kind of used it in a, you know, you kind of combine it in a new way. So it's like taking a bunch of, you know, different colored putties and instead of creating one thing, you create a new thing out of them um, in a different way. So you look at it in a different way. Um, so that's what I did with this. And the sources I used were mostly academic papers, one, because that was a requirement, um, but also that's where a lot of the research is. And then I also used some like newspaper articles to provide information about what was being implemented, um, to provide examples. Um, there was also some imp good information in there, just, you know, what works, what doesn't work. Um, news articles. And then, you know, databases and stuff. I had found s some of the, like the Washington Post one I talked about. Well, and dare I point out, too, with the, the newspaper articles, um, how much we used 
ABC 27 and Seth Kaplan and <laughs> give him a shout out because he's doing a lot of good work that's yeah. fueling our, our doctorate learning. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of the benefits, like you said, it was in the media a lot lately. So one of the benefits for my paper was that there was a lot of different media articles that I could use to supplement my paper. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, not to pat myself on the back, but... Um, if you just use the academic papers, you're only getting that side of it. Mm-hmm. So I think using the newspaper articles, you get a little bit more uh, digestible information sometimes. You also get a little bit different perspectives. You get the examples, the actual implementations. Um, so basically what my paper did was combine what's already out there to say these are the approaches that law enforcement should take in their interactions with uh, persons with mental illness. These are things that the departments can do to better respond um, in terms of what the individual officers can do. And then I also supplemented that with, okay, what can we do to change policies, laws, um, increase access for the officers to certain things. Um, So other strategies that could help uh, relieve this problem. Because traditionally I found that it was one or the other, like they said, you can try this individual, like focus on the police officer themselves, or you can focus on the department as a whole mm-hmm. when my paper's trying to combine the two. Well, and that makes sense because prevention science as a whole is looking at that more global, or at least that's what we're trying to do is take that more global approach to not just say, let's change the individual, but let's also change um, the organization and then let's change police culture and society Um, yeah society our our attitudes and perceptions toward police culture all of it yeah um so what were just some of the recommendations at those different levels that you made in your paper so i came up with based on everything i read was that there's really there's three uh approaches that are already well established um and then I supplement it, like I said, with, we'll say, the, the more global stuff. Um, so the three individual uh, approaches were crisis intervention teams, or CIT. Um, and that sounds like it's just teams, but it is a whole programming um, that was developed. And it's widely implemented. There's thousands of programs all over the United States. Um, and that involves not only collaboration for law enforcement with mental uh, health professionals, but also there's a a 40-hour training that officers go through in order to be what's called CIT um, trained. Um, So actually some some of the officers you actually will see, they have like a CIT little pin on their their uniform Mm -hmm. um, designating them as that. The, The goal would be to have more officers that are obviously trained in that. Some departments try to get as many you know, as many officers as possible. Um, so that's one approach. Um, and that one's very widely uh, accepted. It's considered a best practice for law enforcement. And um, do they have to keep up with, like, CEUs or, like, do that training every couple of years? No, and that's no. one of the limitations yeah. is that they don't really... I mean, law enforcement in general have to do... It's kind of like CEUs, like continuing education. But the requirements are not like it's not like CIT specific it's not like that CIT certification 
means that you then go for new training every year, mm -hmm. which is a limitation of the of the program. Yeah, that would definitely be a good like, um, good policy change to yeah. make it so that you're because our knowledge and awareness around mental illness is always changing. Right. Um, so if you took it once, even five years ago, it's it's outdated in my opinion. Yeah. One of uh, one of the nice things though is that there generally is a, a standardized curriculum for it. So if you were trained, say you're a city of Philadelphia police officer and you're CIT trained, you could then be transferred to the city of Baltimore in Maryland and say, okay, I'm still CIT trained mm -hmm. because the curriculum is pretty standard across the board. Um, it's kind of like the SATs or whatever, where it's one test that everybody takes. Yeah. See, that is nice, but I would almost challenge it because each, each area and each location is going to have a different socio-political history. Uh, the culture is going to be different. So like maybe there could be that standardized CIT training, but there's something supplemental that you have to, to sit and learn about the culture of that area. And maybe you do. I, I have no idea. Um, well, I know that, I mean, there's some discretion in like they can supplement the CIT training. Um, but I don't think there's a specific area of the CIT training that says like, here's some flexibility to, to account for that stuff, hmm. which would definitely be helpful. Um, so that's the first one. The second one is um, co-responder mental health teams. So again, it sounds it sounds like it's almost the same thing as the first one, but this one, instead of just the officer going to the scene, um, this would be now a mental health professional, uh, whether that's a, a, a psychologist, a social worker who's trained um, in mental health. Um, they actually go with the police officer as a team and... Um, will speak with the individual, um, whereas in the CIT program, it's just the officer going mm -hmm. still, but they have a training um, behind that. The co-responder program um, can include just the officer and a police officer. It can also include an EMT, um, which is always great because they have a different skill set and training background, um, and that might be really what is needed in that situation. Um, and then other ones also involve a peer support specialist, mm. which is, you know, a person themselves that maybe has a mental illness or um, a substance use problem um, who has lived experience in that. And now they're there to help that person. And the benefit of this one, as opposed to the CIT program, um, that one does help with this a little bit. But I, what I read was that the co-responder program is amazing with this is connecting that person to what they actually need mm -hmm. in terms of resources. So it's seen as like a diversion to the criminal justice system. So, you know, does this person really need to be um, cited for something or go to jail for what they were doing? Um, or is it really, okay, they just need treatment for this. They need to be connected to even housing options, um, social services in general. Yeah, I really like that one because it's bridging the gap between civilians and police officers, right, or law enforcement. Yep. Um, the hope would be that, well, maybe not, but over time, we've bridged that gap. We've developed the connection between law enforcement and the community, and there's no longer a need for someone in between to help kind of, like, mediate. But, 
in the meantime, I, I think that that's a really, really helpful approach because you get to see someone just like you who's helping you, yep. not, you know, a police officer you've never met and you've only been told, we were just talking about this the other day, like little kids and your parents saying, don't do that, police officer's going to come, um, where you've only really been conditioned to know that the police means bad. Right. So that, I like that one. Yeah, and the the program, these programs are really, the CIT one is, is a program. The co-responder one's more of a model, so it can be adapted to each department's what they, whatever they want to do. So like I said, some departments will say, okay, that means that every time a police officer goes to a scene that might involve someone with a mental illness, a social worker is going to go with them. Um, other departments might say, no, a social worker, an EMT, and a peer support are going to go. So they can kind of adapt it to what they want. Um, and then sometimes the co-responder, so we'll say the police officer is the main responder, um, the co-responder is either employed by the police, actually a staff member of the police department. So like Lancaster City here, um, there's police social workers. They're employed by Lancaster City Police. In other jurisdictions or departments, it might be they're not a staff member of the police department. They're a staff member of their own practice or a mental health agency, and we uh, collaborate. Like, they will get called. Um, they're on call. Mm -hmm. So it's a little different. So they're not actually an employee of the police department. I definitely see benefits to both. Yeah. So that was the, that was the second one. Um, I really like that one, too. And then the third approach, this is kind of so broad and it really hasn't been applied to this specifically, but it's um, community-oriented uh, policing um, is another one. And this has been applied to the, uh, an example of this that people might be familiar with is putting a police officer in schools um, as a school resource officer who is not just there to enforce laws or anything like that. Um, we could get into a whole... Uh, discussion about that but they're also supposed to be there to build relationships with the students so that the uh, students don't have a negative view of law enforcement um, sometimes the police officer is dressed in plain clothes mm -hmm. in the school so that they see them in that perspective as well so it's not just like anytime you see a police officer oh they're always in the uniform and that's intimidating and they're a bad person all that kind of stuff um, so that's an example of, of community orienting uh, policing. Um, but I use that as a model too for this area because the idea being if police officers can be um, themselves be destigmatized by people with mental illness or people in general, um, that will create better interactions between them and the community. Mm -hmm. So getting the police officers more involved in the community, but also having the people um, with a mental illness, their family members, more also involved with law enforcement so that there's a better uh, connection and relationship. Yeah. I think just listening to everything, it really, really highlights, if you think deep down, how much responsibility police officers have. And, I mean, recent coverage has made them out to be, like, just horrible human beings. We have to recognize that not everyone is like that. Um, but you, like, you just think about, you know, here's these police officers that are tasked with 
um, mitigating people in emotional distress, um, trying to make children feel less scared when they see them. Police officers are going to be on scene when you call 911 and are trying to deliver a baby. Like, there's just so many things that they are tasked with and have to know how to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And part of the... So those are the three approaches that I covered in in the paper, focusing on the individual officer. Um, We can talk about the, the more global stuff, too. But my whole paper focused on what can law enforcement do um, in collaboration with others. Mm -hmm. One of the things that you just kind of mentioned was not, it's not just focused on law enforcement, but it's the, the way we operate in general. So when there's an emergency, you call 911, right? Mm -hmm. What other options do you have? Depends on the situation. But most of the time that when we think emergency, we think 911, right? Yeah. We don't think, oh, let me call 211. Let me call, um, what's the... 411? No. Mm, no. <laughs> I don't know. Well, they they were trying to designate, was it 977? Uh, or... uh, like the mental health 911? Yeah, nine, was it 988? I don't know, but we should look that up before telling anybody. Okay. <laughs> That's so brand yeah. new. So, but the idea there is that we're... We as people are conditioned, let's call 911 when there's an emergency. Is that really the police officer's fault that they're the ones that are being reached out to when there's an emergency not involving an actual breaking of the law? Mm-hmm. No. That's how our system is set up. That's what we're conditioned from the time we're very little is dial 911 when you need help, okay? So that, and I didn't even address that in my paper because that's not up to law enforcement to change. Um, that's up to, you know, society in general, let's change, let's provide more options. Um, let's provide other resources. So, um, again, I didn't, I didn't touch that in my paper. I focused on what can law enforcement, uh, community do, um, in response to this problem. Mm -hmm. But that's just another consideration. So should I talk about some of the, one of the other things I found? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so then those are the three models for individuals. The environmental or global stuff that I found was that one of the things is how many officers respond to a scene um, involving a person with mental illness. They found that there was, like many things, kind of like a a sweet spot number, um, that too little was um, considered, it could be considered dangerous for the officer to be by themselves. Mm -hmm or with only one other person, um, but too many was also overwhelming for everybody involved. Um, there's a contagion effect, too. So if there's seven officers there and one of them reaches for their weapon or reaches for something, it, it immediately snowballs into a whole escalation um, that the other officers then feed off of that response. Well, and see, that's interesting because you think about the bystander effect, and so I guess police training kind of mitigates that tendency to go into the bystander effect where it seems like in this instance it would almost be better to have the bystander effect um to just have you know one or two people de-escalating versus everyone joining in and having too many cooks in the kitchen but typically what you see is people are like ah someone else will get that but not in police no law enforcement or literally your training is I, I am an inter- intervener. <laughs> that makes sense. Um, <laughs> you, you want these people 
you know, to be inter interveners. You would see the same thing in probably firefighters too. Um, if firefighters were not trained out of that bystander effect, seven firefighters would go to a scene and one would be like, oh, well, I got the, you know, I got the hose, so I'll take care of it. And all the others would be like, oh, cool. Like, you know, stand back and watch. <laughs> but that's not, they're like people that are in this field of responding they're trained to respond. So, yeah, so it's actually the opposite effect. Yeah. Sometimes my brain is slow to catch up and that was most No, that, and I mean, that's a good point though, that these, the bystander effect, I mean, it could happen, I'm sure, but there's, I've seen a lot more of, it's more of like the contagion or snowball effect where one officer does something and then other ones follow suit. It's not that nobody does anything and then there's a problem. Mm -hmm. um, it's that too much is actually being done. Um, so that was one of the things. So considering how many officers respond to a scene and uh, changing the policies about that. So creating a policy that says this is how many officers should respond to a scene. Um, I believe the number was somewhere between three and four. Mm, that's what I was going to um, ask and then say. <laughs> um, so, but again, that didn't consider that's how many officers are responding. So if you do do the co-responder program, does that account for the co-responder or does it not um that would need to be considered because uh, that would obviously increase the number of how many people are in in the room mm -hmm. um uh, my guess would be if the research says three officers is a good response you might want to have two respond and then have the co-responder to make that three number mm -hmm. um or just see you know maybe because the co-responders are not in the uniform then it doesn't impact the number so three officers could respond and still have co-responders um, respond as well. So that's one policy I saw. Um, another one was increasing the access to non-lethal uses of force uh, technology. So when I reviewed some of the news sources and other information was that um, Philadelphia and New Jersey, um, I had found that both of those states the, a lot of the departments lack the access to, for example, a taser. Um, a taser is, I mean, in my perspective, it definitely is um, a less lethal weapon than a firearm. You know, you're much more likely, uh, hopefully, to survive a, a taser um, being fired at you than a firearm being shot at you. Um, so increasing the access to that um, was just one example. And... A, a department in Pennsylvania that recently is trying to use different technology, increasing access to that, um, is something called the bowler wraps, which are a, a, a remote restraint device, which is fired at somebody, and the uh, Kevlar rope wraps around the person's legs, hopefully, and then the person is immobilized, um, which creates less risk for the officer and the person because then they're not, you know, being able to move around and stuff cause any injury um, and it can physically de-escalate the situation but I would say it's not a substitute for good verbal de-escalation techniques um, and it's still there's a risk for injury you know if the person gets bowl wrapped and then they fall on their face they're still gonna get injured um, it doesn't eliminate any injury so if that was the goal to eliminate an injury then that's not gonna solve that but it definitely could reduce it um, so definitely increasing access to the use, the other options for a police officer. Mm -hmm. You know, if they only have a firearm and handcuffs 
their options are limited in that situation. Um, obviously, we want them to use verbal techniques first, um, but unfortunately, you know, if they feel like it's escalating to a point where their life's in danger or another officer's life's in danger or another person, then if they only have a firearm to reach for, that's unfortunately what they're going to reach for. Um, but if they have increased access to, say, a taser or pepper spray, then they have other options that they, or the bowl wrap, they can use those things instead first. Do you think the, the culture is shifting to a point of um, vocal de-escalation first if safe, and then if unsafe, it's, like physical de-escalation? Because it feels like when you see in the media, and I know we can't always just look at the media as like that's what's happening everywhere, but it feels like it's like physical de-escalation is the go-to. Um, and the counselor in me wants to say, let's try talking first. Um, but I recognize that that can't happen in every situation. You have to assess the safety. Um, do you feel like there's a culture shift happening or? Well, I mean, officers have always been trained on a use of force continuum Mm -hmm. or spectrum, which the idea is you match you need to either match or slightly surpass the amount of force that's being given to you. So going on a continuum means like at the one end, the we'll say the, the lowest end is just an officer's mere presence because someone in uniform already is exhibiting or exerting some force over you mm-hmm. because that gives them some authority, right? Um, when you see an officer just walk by you, they don't have to do anything. They don't even have to talk to you and that's force. Um, that's the lowest form of force. Next up would be verbal interaction with you. Next up would be, um, you know, restraining you using just their hands. Next up would be restraining you using handcuffs. Um, next up would be pepper spray or or using hands, uh, hand to hand, um, confrontation, pepper spray, taser, all the way up to, um, a firearm. So they've always emphasized you need to go up the scale like that. You don't just start with, you know, the highest level of force unless that's what you're met with. Um, the goal would be you go up the continuum based on what you're getting. That's always been mm-hmm. promoted. Now, I can't speak for every officer, though. You know, if in their mind they got into the field for the wrong reason and they just want to use a gun or they just want to use a firearm, they just want to use a taser, they may be more quickly to, to reach for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, that's not, that's not a law enforcement specific issue. That's, you know, it's you need to address, issue. yeah, you need to address individuals. Yeah. Now that makes sense. And it, it makes sense why what we see in the media is what appears to be more of the, I'm going to meet you with force. One, because we don't see what's happening before that force is happening. And two, it's the hope that those those officers we're seeing in the media are the outliers. They're the ones in in the profession for the wrong yep. reasons. Well, um, or they just... I wouldn't say it's just the wrong reasons because some of the things that I found was, you know, a lack of training, a lack mm-hmm. of information. True. Um, poor... Poor training or, again, poor access, uh, limited access to these things. Um, 
And also, we don't know what's going on for the officers. They could have all the training in the world, but they just found out their mom died and... Right, so personal factors, yeah. <laughs> there's something something happening for them as well, which doesn't excuse their behavior, but it gives us a, a lens to look at it through. Yep. Um, real quick, some of the other things I had suggested or found was increased civilian presence on a police force um, or police department. Um, so this is going to the ABC 27... Seth Kaplan. Seth Kaplan. <laughs> he was looking at that, and that was the initial uh, idea was, oh, well, if we just have more civilians, non-uniformed um, officers, on the force, that will automatically improve our relationship in the community. And that was the what they put out there first. But then they said, no, no, no hold on a second. And they actually spoke with um, some uh, legal experts and one of them had said, you know, no, it's not, the, it's not the mere number of how many civilians are on your force. It's what you have them doing. If all of them are just behind the desk on the phone, the community is not really going to see them. The community is not really going to interact with them. So what is it doing? What is it actually helping your build your relationship with the community? Mm-hmm. If instead some of your civilians are being used as the social workers, um, as outreach people, as spokespeople, even on the news you know, not just showing the, the uniformed officers, that might have a better effect on the interactions. So numbers aren't everything, it's what you have them doing on the force. Um, and then another one was community review boards. So anytime an officer uses force, um, especially if it's fatal, um, the officer would not only have to answer to the uh, department, but also to a community review board that's set up, which would obviously involved members of the community um, and they could kind of uh, look at it and say, you know, was this an appropriate use based on our perspective? Um, and then they'll make recommendations based on that. Mm-hmm. So I little, like that because it gives power and control to the community. It makes them feel like they have a say too mm-hmm. um, in terms of the law enforcement. Uh, is that a perfect system by itself? No. Um, because, again, the community doesn't have the same training as a law enforcement officer, um, but it does give another avenue that we could look at. Yeah. What about, like, community coalitions? Yeah, that wasn't one that I talked about in my paper, but that's a way that can use all of these different techniques at once, because a coalition could involve all of these different agencies, people... And then interventions as well. So that's definitely something. Oh, um, one of the environment, other policy change things was creating uh, universal use of force guidelines. So unfortunately, a lot of the times, each department will have their own use of force guidelines. One way to help, and that sounds like, well, how's that going to help if they all just have the same? The idea is if then if an officer switches departments for any reason, they already know what to expect and they can all go to one source for guidance um, because that one source understands that they're all the same. So having just like having universal laws for you know you and I, it's helpful that I know that it's illegal to run a red light you know here down the street, but also it's illegal to do that in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. I know it's illegal to do that in New Jersey. I know it's illegal to do that in California. Mm, New Jersey. Mm. <laughs> okay, illegal doesn't mean that it's not going to be done, 
But again, so the universality <laughs> is the idea behind that is, okay, I know what to expect no matter what. So that was one of the recommendations that I had found repeatedly. And then I saw it implemented. Um, Bucks County had said that their entire county, all of the departments will follow the same use of force guidelines so that there's just one that they go to. Um, and then they made specific recommendations within those guidelines. So that was another way that we can approach this. So on this topic, um, do you think we'll see more from you? Is there future directions you want to take with it? Um, I, Like I said, this was really, it wasn't my own research. It was looking at others and seeing what works, what doesn't work. Um, so I did come up with some limitations and stuff. So addressing some maybe some of the questions that you asked earlier, like gender differences, those kinds of things. Um, another lacking area was, you know, what do we do to interact with po uh, between police and youth with mental illness? So they really looked at adults, and we know that not only adults are experiencing, you know, full-blown um, diagnoses, but also symptoms. Um, that would be you know, something I would want to do too is just to look at how police can interact with youth better um, in terms of these interactions because that would definitely be uh, something that would be important. And that just got me spinning into my own thoughts of like animal-assisted interventions and police and how could that potentially be used as a de-escalation technique. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's thoughts for, for not right now. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I do hope... Uh, again, I, I mean, I don't think that my paper is uh, groundbreaking by any technique or by any means, but I tried to take everything that's out there and kind of boil it down into one spot because mm -hmm. all of this is all scattered over um, and then applying it to specifically with persons with mental illness interactions versus racial interactions. Mm -hmm. um, so actually one of the other implementation techniques that they were using for racial stuff was implicit bias training for officers mm -hmm. and not just for officers they you know starbucks i think even tried to do implicit bias training i think we all could benefit from it really i mean it could be implemented in schools mm -hmm. um but the idea here with law enforcement it was it was focusing on racial biases against um you know blacks uh hispanic or people with um a hispanic uh, ethnicity or People, people of color. People of color. Um, but what I suggested in my paper, based on that and the fact that some of the research found that there are biases of officers towards people with mental illness. Um, for example, people with mental illness are dangerous. Mm -hmm. That's a bias that some officers have. One, because of a lack of knowledge about mental illness. Um, maybe bad personal experiences with uh, people with mental illness. Or what is presented in the media. Um, so doing that implicit bias training for them, for that specific population as well, would be helpful. Um, and then something else that I had found, again, used elsewhere, but not yet with this, was stress reduction techniques for officers. Ah, love it. To be used in the field. So the officer, you know, obviously dealing with someone in general in a police interaction could be stressful. But dealing with someone with a mental illness, especially if you don't have a lot of experience with that, um, you know, right now they're under scrutiny and, and 
extra pressure. So that obviously becomes more stressful. And we know that in when your you know, stress response is activated, you're not going to be thinking as clearly. Um, you may act quicker in certain regards. Um, so they might use a higher level of force without thinking um, as clearly. And the idea here would be if they can, you know, check their stress system using these techniques like deep breathing um, was one of them. Um, I think guided imagery was another one that they had talked about. Mm -hmm. um, but simple things that we've used with other uh, professions, used in other situations, used with clients. But now the officer can use this and be trained on this so that they can use it in the field and hopefully respond better. Mm -hmm. So that was another one that I had, I had seen a lot. Yeah, that one's so, like, again, a, a seemingly simple solution to a complex problem. Like, you going back to your very basic crisis intervention skills for yourself. Mm -hmm. Breathing. Drinking water. <laughs> drinking water. Peeing out the stress hormones. I will say it until I'm blue in the face. Um, you know, those are very basic things that you can do right there on the spot or right before and has an impact. Right. And it's, it's sadly, it's not widely trained. Mm -mm. Um, it's actually not even part of the CIT program um, and that training, the 40-hour training. So I think, you know, even that great best practice model doesn't incorporate that method. Um, again, a combination of all of these things might be the best, you know, way. There's no one silver bullet. It's more so let's you know, try as many things as we can in combination. And that is, that's what makes it, you know, in a successful approach. So as it turns out, there are too many moving pieces to make empathy the solution. That's very true. <laughs> we cannot solve it. We cannot solve world peace with just empathy. Hmm. Bummer. But we have all these great... Spoiler alert. Great strategies and solutions. Yep. Hopefully we'll see some progress there. Just one uh, challenge that I see, other than, you know, no simple solution and, you know, finances and stuff being a part of all this training and programming. But the other thing is, no matter what, and I, I maybe this is an unpopular belief because the media, like you said, kind of paints this as a, the law enforcement are all doing the wrong thing. Um, but... The reality, I, I would say, is that some situations involving a person with mental illness will still require the presence of a police officer. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that our movement should be to take them out of the equation completely, which I think some people do swing towards, you know, that extreme of, you know, okay, law enforcement are being overused in these situations, so now let's take them out of all the situations. And I don't think that's the solution because there's still, if there's a risk of injury or death to somebody, I don't, it, it doesn't matter if the person has mental illness or not. The law enforcement's job is to protect the community mm -hmm. from that threat. Um, and unfortunately, you know, if that means that the, the person, the officer has to use some sort of force, um, you know, that, that protection is what they are there for. Um, you know, they may not have the skills to do the de-escalation, all that kind of stuff, so maybe the co-responder program would help with that. But I think 
that, and that's why I like that program is that the officer's still there. Um, I think there's this false sense of idea that, you know, just because a person has a mental illness, and we learn that after the fact, usually, um, in terms of media coverage, um, that we say, oh, well, the officer shouldn't have done that. Um, unfortunately, though, if a person is running at an officer with a knife, the officer's response might appropriately be use the force, mm-hmm. right? Use a uh, use of deadly force. Well, um, and take away take away officer the word officer out of the equation. If if someone is running at you with a knife, what are you gonna right. do? You're gonna your your fight or flight system is gonna kick in. And you're gonna choose one of those. And for police officers, they're going into the situation not to flee. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, what are they going to the call for? So it's a it's a human reaction is what our bodies have developed to do is right. fight or flee right or freeze or freeze but yeah again we don't want them doing that either. we don't want the officer to do that we want the person to do that you know the officer yells freeze to the person but um but yeah the the idea here isn't that you know Law enforcement should never use deadly force. And I again, I think that might be an unpopular opinion. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, if you're being approached with deadly force, yes, verbal es- de-escalation would be great to use because it doesn't mean that the other person's going to be injured. But if that means that the officer's then going to die or another person's going to die, um, that's not really the best response. They have to take the consideration and balance all the risks, all the factors, and say... Um, a, a phrase that law enforcement uses is the totality of the circumstances. So again, yes, they have a mental illness, but they also have a knife and they could hurt this person. Mm-hmm. Um, now, just because the person has a knife, if they're not seeming to be you know, running towards the officer or something like that, maybe other techniques could be used first. For you know, sure. Let's, let's de-escalate the situation. Let's have the co-responder help with that. Um, let's see if they actually need something else. Um, but once that person, you know, starts running towards the officer or the other person, uh, you know, unfortunately, verbal de-escalation might not work anymore or not may not be quick enough to, to prevent injury or death to somebody else. But I just wanted to touch on that. I know that might be an unpopular opinion among some, but... I think it is, but it's a perspective and it never hurts to just listen to other perspectives because that officer is also a human and like we said what we see is I like to believe and maybe that just this is an optimistic view is that what we see covered is those are the outliers you know your your typical officers are out there doing really excellent work and doing the absolute best job that they can Mm -hmm. but they're being painted as um less than less than that yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, look at how many officers we have in the United States versus how many of them end up uh, unjustly, we'll say, killing a person. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not it's not the same number. It's, you know, it's not equivalent. Um, every life does matter, so it's worth trying to prevent in the future, but um, I, I hate to say it, but sometimes it's not... It's not completely preventable. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea is how can we do better? Yeah. yeah. But nonetheless, why we got into the field of prevention science to help reduce how many times this is occurring and make life better for all. 
<laughs> well, um, I know that was a lot of information, so thank you so much for listening and sticking through that. Um, you know, check back in with me, and uh, I might hear more about this topic in the future. Remember, Neurological is a true crime podcast to be psyched about. <laughs>